All right, we'll get started. We had a uh, fantastic meeting here on Monday, which I wasn't a part of, which is completely fine with me. Um, but Resurrection is pretty much the geographic center of the Michigan district. Um, so they had their, their annual like circuit pastors meeting, um, including guys from all the way up in like Sault Ste. Marie and down to Cincinnati and used to about Pittsburgh or so. Um, so all I did was open up the, uh, open up the building, give them the Wi-Fi password and turn the lights on. <laughs> um, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't hear any complaints. <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard any complaints yet. Yeah, yeah. I know. No, not. I, I had other stuff to do. Um, although a few years ago, I was here in case they needed anything, and I was just doing some work in my office, and um, and listening to something on my my headphones, which always looks like you're listening to something on your headphones and you can't hear anything else as long as as you have headphones in. So um, that one was a really good meeting too. That one was more interesting from what I heard. Um, so we were talking about the doctrine of original sin, lesson eight. Um, as we get started, or before we get started, are there any, um, any questions, either lingering questions from last time, or other things that we should, uh, should touch on? At the bottom of um, at the bottom of page one ninety one, you get that beautiful term opinio legis, and you know it's a theology term, and you know it's an important theology term because it's in Latin. <laughs> so opinio legis, um, meaning opinion of the law, and and that's that's kind of the way that we think of how the original sin perceives God's law. It has its own opinion of the law. That the original sin thinks that I, what, I have, what I've done isn't that bad. And, and if it is that bad, then God shouldn't hold me accountable. Um, and at the same time, what that other person did is so incredibly bad that, that nobody should ever be able to forgive that. Um, that's, that's opinion legacy in a nutshell. And the reason it comes up there is it comes up a number of times in our Lutheran confessions, um, conquered. And they kind of use that term to describe basically the opinion that the sinful nature has about itself, that each person by nature has their own opinion on about their own goodness or their own lack of goodness and what God's standard actually is. Um, and we see, I mean, we, we're very familiar with it. Sometimes it's kind of helpful to have a, uh, have a term that we can use as a handle for it. Um, so today, tonight, we're picking up with that section entitled Attacks on the Doctrine of Original Sin. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 8.
Romans chapter 8, verse 7 is where we are picking up. Do we have a volunteer to read that for us? Go ahead, please. No, that's, uh, I guess that, that's, that's clear enough. Um, that the mindset of the sinful flesh is hostile to God. Um, not just that hostile describes it, but it's actually a noun there. Uh, the mindset is, is hostility toward God. Um, that that is the only thing that is, is present in the sinful flesh um, and in, in original sin. We often use that term sinful flesh and original sin fairly intangibly. Um, second. We use those terms fairly interchangeably, um, original, original sin and sinful flesh. Um, and I think I, I, I kind of prefer sinful flesh um, a little bit more because it's the reminder that this is part and parcel of our existence here on earth and we can't, we can't have it any other way. Um, and then we'll go ahead from Romans to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. And 1 Corinthians 2 14 reads like this. However, an unspiritual person does not accept the truths taught by God's spirit because they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually evaluated. And here, isn't that a, you know, somebody who doesn't have faith, not just that they can't um, discuss spiritual concepts or have some rudimentary grasp of, of how a religion works, um, but what Paul is really referring to here is that, that a person will never understand these things and believe them be apart from faith, um, that apart from faith, that person is spiritually dead. And as a result, the ways of God, uh, both in what he has revealed to us, as well as what he has kept hidden from us, um, but that way God acts will always be offensive and, and will always be confusing and confounding and look like foolishness. And that's kind of the, the whole theme of this, this little section um, from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, talking about the foolishness of, of what was preached, that God chose in his apparent foolishness to save the world through the crucifixion of his son. And so I think those two verses, at the very least, um, establish for us or, you know, plainly establish for us that the sinful flesh or original sin or the sinful nature is, um, is something that is hostile to God and it is something that we are trapped in. And, um, and that kind of leads us in the, the rest of that question talking about Arminianism, Pelagianism, and Sturgism. <laughs> oh boy, all the, uh, the isms. It's like if you if you want a heresy or if you want a false teaching, just attach ism onto the end of something. Um, and this picks up on 191 and 192, gets into um, especially Arminianism and Pelagianism. Um, and then synergism comes in a little bit shortly after that. Uh, so first of all, what are Arminianism and Pelagianism and <laughs> Or what is one of them? Yeah, yeah. Now, the way that we... Define Arminianism at the bottom of page and do one. Uh, the false teach people are either spiritually neutral or basically good. Um, 
that every child comes into this world as a blank slate and it's um it's their environment and how they turn out and um and the, that some people turn out you know to be good upright citizens and the reason that others turn out to you know be criminals um is just a pro simple product of their environment um because at the very least arminius arminius believes that everybody is, is neutral um, and then it's up to you to make your decision one way or the other. And uh, Pelagianism. Pelagianism is, um, is the next side, um, that first full paragraph on page 192. Um, Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism are, are related. Um, Pelagianism hasn't really been a concern for a very long time. Um, but in that first full paragraph on page 192, Pelagianism, named after the 5th century British monk Pelates, in its crudest form, is the false teaching that even without God's help, we can perform good works that are good and meritorious in the eyes of God. Um, and so Pelagianism is just straight up, I can do whatever it takes to get to heaven. I can do good things on my, on my own volition of my own will. Um, and that was that was fairly early on, you know, named after a fifth century monk, and it, it was shortly after that, within, I think, within like two hundred years, that Pelagianism itself was totally discarded. Like, that's obviously not what the Bible teaches. Um, Semi-Pelagianism is um, is the idea is basically what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Semi-Pelagianism is that God gives you the start; He gives you the jump start. And then you are then able to do things that are good in God's eyes. You, you are then able to do good works that have uh, spiritual value, that are notorious, um, that can balance out the scales, but good things. And you can, in that way, atone for what you have done. And so the difference between Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism starts with me. I make the decision and then God empowers me the rest of the way to do good works. Semi-Pelagianism starts with God, um, that God gives me a spark, that God gives me a jump start, and then, and then because I couldn't do that myself, but then I can do things that are meritorious, things that are um, have spiritual value, things that are spiritually good. And kind of where that, we're, we're right in the middle, I guess, um, because Arminianism is basically everybody... Roman Catholic or um, or Lutheran, and then semi-Pelagianism is Roman Catholicism, where they believe that at um, at a, at your baptism, God washed away the sin that you were born with, and He gave you a spark of the divine, um, which is very similar to what the Eastern Orthodox teaches as well. But that there at your baptism, God basically gave you a spiritual jump start, where you can then do things that are spiritually good in God's eyes. Um, the interesting thing and the, the nice thing, at least from, from the Roman Catholic side, is that the Roman Catholic Church is um, still a means of grace church, which is at least helpful when you're talking with somebody from a Roman Catholic background, as compared to somebody with, from an Arminian background, where there's no, there's no need for a means of grace in most of the churches that are Arminian churches today. 
the Roman Catholic idea of the means of grace is not the, the word of God or the gospel and word and sacrament, as you or I believe. Um, the Roman Catholic idea of the means of grace is basically the priest that the priest is the channel of God's grace, and that he is the one who then doles out the tokens of God's grace, which you then use to pay down your sin. Um, and so if those two things, I think, together help us have a, you know, a, maybe a better understanding of Roman Catholicism, um, that it's semi-Pelagian, that it is still a means of grace church body, but the means of grace is the priest, and that grace, their definition of grace, isn't God's attitude toward us for the sake of Jesus, but their definition of grace is um, like basically tokens. <laughs> I think he had that, that illustration earlier in the book, basically tokens that God gives you that you can then spend on your sin um, rather than this ongoing attitude for the sake of Jesus. And that, that's part and parcel of, I mean, it comes back to semi-Pelagianism, that if you believe that you can work your way to heaven, then there has to be some, and, and they still want to maintain something that resembles biblical Christianity, then they have to tie in that concept of grace in a way that enables the Christian to do things that are spiritually good in order to pay off their debt of sin. Yeah, good question. Was, uh, was this you know, like always there? Um, or was that a relatively recent development? It was, it was there. Um, if you look through the Book of Concord, and, and, there, and where it comes up most often in our Lutheran confessions is the term the Mass. And so in the sacrament of the Mass, or the sacrifice of the Mass, as the Roman Catholics describe it, and as is talked about in the Book of Concord, um, they're referring to a, a worship service in which they have the Lord's Supper, and, but, but it's totally backwards from our understanding of the Mass. Um, and so the, the difficulty with the Book of Concord when it talks about the Mass is that they, in, in one breath, they'll talk it down and say, we absolutely throw out everything that is bad about the Mass that it's not a sacrifice, it's not, you know, an unbloody re-sacrificing of Christ in an unbloody way. Um, and that, I mean, that had been doctrine for at least 200 years before Luther became a priest. Um, so at the, on, on, one, on one hand, they, have, they are condemning the Mass very openly, because that is, that is the place where the priest is the intercessor between the people and God, and he re-offers Jesus for the sins of the people who are gathered there, or for the patron who paid for that mass. Um, at the same time, in other parts of the Book of Concord, they'll say that we, we vigorously retain the mass. Um, but what they mean isn't that, you know, the Lutherans are also re-sacrificing Christ. What they mean is that we still celebrate the Lord's Supper every, every Lord's Day, every Sunday. Um, but if you, if you, we've got a copy of the book of Concord, um, in the library, if you don't have one yet, and if you start to page around and just look for that term, um, then, then you'll start to see that distinction because the re reformers saw that as the, as the most blatant travesty or the most blatant way in which this semi-Pelagianism showed up. 
um, because they saw the Lord's Supper as purely grace of Jesus giving you your, your forgiveness again. And the Roman church had turned it into um, this priest re-sacrificing Jesus because then you, the parishioner who are there, or you, the person who paid for it, are earning merit, are earning good merits in God's eyes. Um, and that by earning those merits, by attending that mass, by funding that mass, you then are getting years knocked off of purgatory, or you're getting that great grievous sin that hit the front page, uh, you're getting that expunged from your spiritual record. So it was there. Um, as far as, you know, when did the Roman Catholic Church start? We usually trace it to right around the year 1200, 1200, 1300. Um, and I think it was Gregory the Great would be kind of seen as the first pope right around that time. Um, but you can see it already kind of starting to go in that direction um, in the 700s or 800s, um, which is you know, roughly 300 years after the fall of Rome. Good question. Anything else? So that's the semi-Pelagianism. And well, I guess we'll, we'll talk about Roman Catholicism um, more another time because <laughs> it's very pertinent. Um, but then the whole sacramental system within the Roman Catholic Church is also an outgrowth of the semi-Pelagianism that you have to have your child baptized um, by a priest because then that child is able to do good works. Um, you have to attend the mass. You have to either get married or be, you know, take a vow of, um, of becoming a monk or a nun um, in order to, as part of your good works that you do. You go to confession, not just to confess and to have your sin forgiven, but to confess and then to be told, what is it that you have to do? You know, five Hail Marys and seven Our Fathers in order to have the sins that you just confessed actually forgiven. Um, it, it's an entire system that is built on the idea that grace or justification is not complete, um, but that through the, through the ministry of the church, you as the individual believer have the ability to complete, to finish what Jesus didn't. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Work righteousness. Yeah. 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 What do you do? Um, and we are saved by grace alone, you know, through faith and not by ourselves. Um, it, I used to be irritated, you know, you go to a pastor's conference or some other convention or something, and whoever's standing up there reading a paper spends the first page and a half defining what, what the terms mean. <laughs> like, okay, grace, justification, uh, forgiveness, or, you know, something more specific. Um, but I've come to appreciate that a little bit more as, as the years have gone on. Because you, if you attach a different meaning to grace, then you can, that, that's probably leverage enough to change an entire verse. That you are saved by grace through faith. Um, that you are saved by, by God's grace, which he continues to give to you, and that this is received through your continual believing. Um, it's, if, you, if you start to change those terms into something that is not according to the scriptural term, then you can end up at a, at a place that is not in line with what scripture is trying to say. 
Yeah, don't don't add or subtract. It's there at the end of um, Deuteronomy and at the end of Revelation. Um, and that that I guess that ties in a little bit more with the authority within the church that that the scriptures in in their mind are both the Bible that you have or the Bible that they have rather, as well as the authority of the Pope when he's speaking from, from his throne to, to provide further clarification based on his, um, you know, this unbroken succession of the, from the apostles to the present day, this unbroken succession that he has the ability to, to provide more clarification from that so-called holy tradition. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's kind of frustrating. What's that? Yeah, once he's speaking ex cathedra or from the from the chair, and then he's infallible. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a scary thing. All right, so that that's um, semi-Pelagianism. The the other side on Arminianism. Um, the the difference is just who starts it. Semi-Pelagianism starts with God, that God provides the spark and that you go on your way. Arminianism is the reverse of that, that I make the decision, I invite Jesus into my heart, and then we work together there. And, um, and it's, it's the exact same thing, except I think I, I said this maybe on Sunday, that the way you think you came to faith is the way that you think you remain in the faith that it's still work righteousness that points the Christian back to himself or herself for certainty. That if I think that, you know, I'm not a good enough Christian today, then I, and I'm an Arminian, then I just recommit myself. And I, and I have an experience that is even more emotional because that is even more real. And the Arminianism, you can't, you can't separate that from at least, at least today, you can't really separate it from being a non means of grace church body. Because um, if they if there are a means of grace, because the, the way that it normally works with Arminianism and any other kind of blend with Calvinism that we have today is very similar. Uh, but the way that it works is they'll set up the situation for the Holy Spirit to do his work. But then you, as the individual believer, when you feel you know this stirring within your heart or your emotions, um, because the Holy Spirit's often identified with my emotions, then I then I have this feeling to commit my way to God, or to you know go and make confession at the altar call, or go and be baptized. You name it; it's all just variations on the same theme. That I have to be the one to make the decision to accept Jesus into my life. Yes. Exactly. Billy Graham would be a fantastic example of Arminianism. That, uh, so basically, you know, modern Baptist theology of every stripe, uh, Presbyterianism and Methodism, uh, for sure, to the extent that they, that they still care about um, being spiritually good or avoiding, avoiding what is spiritually bad. Um, because that's that's where you end up after you know a, a century or two, is that if if it if it's predicated on my work and my decision to make a decision for Christ, um, then eventually, the focus is all, all about my continued decision for Christ or my continued action for Christ or my continued you know deciding. I guess I said that uh, rather than on the Jesus who actually forgave me, and then. Well, what do you need Jesus for if your religion is just about living a, a good life? If your religion is only about um, 
you have the spiritual ability to choose what is better and you have the spiritual ability to do something good in order to expunge any bad that you have in your life, then you don't really need a Jesus. You don't really need a savior at all. Um, and synergism. <clears throat> That's the last one that we had there. Um, synergism is the, is the kind of mixing um, even no matter, no matter where you start at the beginning, I don't know if we had a, a definition in our books here, maybe not. Anyway, synergism is this idea that we, that we cooperate along with God. And it's kind of an umbrella statement, um, where Arminianism, Arminianism would fit as one, one you know, manner of synergism, semi-Pelagianism is another manner of synergism, or, um, or even if somebody's like, I believe that, that I was totally dead in sin, and God brought me to faith through holy baptism, and now it's up to me to, to change my life, <laughs> you know, to whatever extent my salvation depends, or my forgiveness depends on me changing my life, um, that's synergism. And that's, I mean, that's a temptation for, for everybody. Um, because we don't see as clearly as, as we ought. Um, but it's also something that can, that can work in, work its way in the back door or the side door of a, of a church body, even when that church body confesses, you know, something that is not semi-Pelagianism and something that is not Arminianism. You know, if you, even a Lutheran church body confesses, you know, baptismal regeneration would be the other term we might use there. So what makes them so dangerous? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, that synergism is, is that question of why, um, because, and, and this, this gets into the broader discussion of, of law and gospel within a Christian's life. Um, that question of why do we do good works? Why do we want to do these things? Um, and we, we, but it's probably, you know, it's a daily struggle, um, or, or at least weekly, I suppose, to, to say that, you know, I want to do these, these good things, these good works, because they're good, they're God-pleasing, they're in line with God, God's law, and I know that I don't make myself better in it, um, aside, from, aside from perhaps improving some element of my life here on earth. Um, but it's always a temptation to say, or for the, the mind to think that by changing this, then I have undone, you know, undone my previous sin is an easy way where it, where it can kind of creep in, it, um, you know, like with alcoholism, if you've, or, you know, alcohol abuse, I guess is the term. If you ever want, if you've never sat in on an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, um, you know, just sit in, sit in the back, like once, <laughs> you know, don't go multiple times, but you will definitely see people who have come face to face with the law and with the guilt of their sin in a way that they can't avoid. Um, and, but then all they end up with is a law driven solution to what they previously did. And, and I think that would, that would be an example, you know, if the Christian thinks that by spending the next 379 days of my life sober, I can undo the damage of, you know, last how many years of alcohol abuse, um, that's not really how it works. You know, physiologically, sure. You know, your body can start to recover from alcohol abuse like that. But spiritually, let's just let that sin be sin and let's let the, the good works be the good works in response to God's 
God's grace for us. Um, but I think that's, that's a really good point, Crystal, um, to recognize that, that even when we want to do good works, and, and Paul says this like in um, Romans 7, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me, that, that left to our own devices, that sinful flesh would try to corrupt even the good things that we do. Um, and so you think of like, like Luther's morning prayer or Luther's evening prayer. Um, I thank you, my heavenly father, that you have grace, that you have kept me this day from all harm and danger. Graciously keep me this night, forgive me all my sin. And, um, you know, however, however he concludes that, but that idea that, that the original sin that I am born with is something that I can't scrub out. And it's a daily battle, but the battle isn't just between making a decision to do something sinful versus not sinful. The battle is to um, come crawling back to, to my Jesus every single day that my Jesus, you know, forgives and covers over and makes complete all that was incomplete. And he, he washes away every impure motive and, um, and has set me free again with that reassurance that forgiveness is his ongoing attitude toward us for the sake of his own resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. They all, they all teach that, um, that we can be a part of our own salvation and really where that ends up is if, if I can be a part of, of my salvation ever so small of a little bit, then it's just a difference of degree. Um, then it's like, well, is it 1%? Is it 10%? Is it 100%? Um, if it depends on me in any, in any percentage, then first of all, forgiveness is uncertain. But then second of all, then my action is unlimited in its potential. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's to our human pride that says, well, I'm not as bad as God says that I am. And I can, I can stop if I want, you know, I can give up smoking cold Turkey or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Um, not that smoking in and of itself is sinful, but we'll talk about that in another topic. Um, but, but this idea that, that I can change my life if I just have the right guidance, if I just have the right system and I have the ability has a very high view of human nature um, and human capacity or potential. And, and you see that, and this is the interesting part. You see that not just in religious circles, but then also in, um, in like, you know, psychology and therapy discussions and also in, um, in politics that there's a whole lot of crossover where politics will also, you know, politicians will, will hold out the idea. Well, if we just improve their circumstances and help people, more people out of poverty, then they'll make the right decisions. And then they will, will have a, a better, stronger country, um, you know, fill in the blank. But that idea of synergism is, is alive and well, even among people who have no understanding of the true God. How about the next one? How does synergism affect worship music and style? It doesn't. Moving on. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, the, the 
be sort of look what I've done for you, God. <laughs> that's that's a yeah. Job, I think. <laughs> yeah, Job would be a good example of um <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I think I think Job would be a really good example of uh, of synergism, um, because rather, you know, where where do you end up? I mean, obviously, he's in a very distressing place, having lost everything, including his health and his wife telling him, "Why don't you just curse God and die?" Um, but then, but then, Job, instead of saying, "Well," I am a sinner. And this is where he ends up at the end of the book. I am sinful and I deserve nothing good from God. Um, Job was like, well, why, why doesn't God come down? I'll ask him some questions. Okay. What else? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good example that um, that music definitely touches the emotions and music isn't neutral, even like tunes, you know, notes on a keyboard. Um, and that was one of the one of the, the dumb things that our synod made, like a part of their, the synodical convention back in the 90s. There was a resolution that said that music is inherently neutral. Um, and I think it got passed. I don't know. I don't remember. I'd have to look that up again. Um, but we know that music isn't neutral. I mean, who sings, um, who sings happy birthday to the most dour downtrodden melody that you can think of? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it did. It did. Yeah. So we know that, that music touches emotions and music is, is not neutral. Yeah. And, and even the, one of the hymns in our hymnal, like just as I am without one plea, like that was, that was Billy Graham's altar call song. Um, can we sing it? Well, the words and the, the tune itself is, is manageable and you can sing it fairly easily. And the, the tune, the words aren't bad. Um, I haven't chosen it very often for us to sing mostly because of that association, but you know, there are maybe not as many people who, especially growing up in the Lutheran church would link just as I am with an altar call because we don't do altar calls for this very reason. Um, but it's, it's some of those where you've, you've got the decision in the background where there's a little bit more going on than just are the words good? Is the music okay? Um, and I think, you know, uh, See what else? How does synergism affect worship music and style? And the, the, the other side is um, like the other extreme would be to say that the only, the only music that the Lutheran church can use is the music written by like the best musician of all time, apparently, Johann Sebastian Bach, um, where even, even everybody, even like trained musicians say, well, there's Bach and then there's everybody else. Um, and he was a Lutheran and he wrote, he wrote chorales for the Lutheran church, like eight part, eight part harmonies where there's like men and women singing together in you know, very intricate tunes. Um, I haven't gotten into any of his stuff. <laughs> I, I never learned German in school. Um, so I'm not really a Lutheran pastor, <laughs> but the other extreme on, on the one extreme, um, the one extreme would say we we have to avoid you know all guitar um, 
And the other extreme would say, or maybe it's that same extreme to say that we can only sing these hymns that are historically Lutheran and at least 400 years old. Um, single out guitar. <laughs> guitar. Yeah. I mean, guitar or, or any other, any other, um, it was, I know. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, realistically, uh, until modern digital music, we haven't had something that can lead a congregation with one person the way that an organ can. That one person with a minimal amount of practice can lead an entire congregation um, by using an organ. With digital music now, um, Pastor Hagen or Crystal can throw them into the, the playlist and then we can be as loud or as soft as we want and, and can still lead a congregation in that respect. Um, and so, you know, talking about, talking about synergism affecting worship music and style, um, that it's not, not so much a question of, of style, um, because synergism could be found at both, both ends of the extreme and even in the middle, um, because synergism is this attitude that tries to put the impetus on, on the believer. And, um, you know, if I, if I had a pet peeve, that it would probably be that, you know, our, our hymnals over the last 50 to 75 years have gradually shifted to, on the one hand, including more modern music from people who are still alive today. And on the other hand, um, you know, and some of them very well written, um, but on the other hand, that for one reason or another means that we also are picking from musicians who deny a means of grace theology um, or musicians who come from an Arminian or semi-Pelagian semi background, um, where the, the focus of their work isn't just to proclaim Christ, but to proclaim Christ in such a way that the believer is, is stirred in his or her heart, however you define that, um, so that they, they either feel like they feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, or they feel like committing themselves to God in a very public way. And I think that's, that's, that's not an easy one to work through. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 We're, we're praising Jesus for, for what he did and, and so, you know, a Lutheran church picks up in Christ alone and says a fantastic hymn. It's got, uh, it's got good set to a good tune that they, that they wrote specifically for this. It's fantastic. And, um, and without that baggage of, of wherever the, the Getty's doctrinal background is coming from, then we can read that on its own merits and say, you know, this tune and the, and the wording is it, it des deserves a spot in our hymnal. <laughs> um, yeah. And so there, there is there is a little bit of benefit and benefit benefit of the doubt, as well as a certain sense of objectivity, when we aren't in a uh, a church body that has Arminianism as its main idea, or even semi-Pelagianism as its main idea, but that our church body um, is a church body that proclaims both original sin, and that means being spiritually dead as well as a means of grace god and so kind of the way that i've summarized this uh, and i came 
came up with this, not, not me originally, I'm sure. Um, but the way that I kind of summarize it is that the central doctrine of scripture is justification by grace through faith. And it has to be bookended by original sin and the means of grace. And that will, that will deal with all of these errors, um, or at least most of these errors, um, and help us to, to kind of keep on track with where this is supposed to be. Yeah, definitely. And like thinking through, thinking through service planning, I think that's a really good way of putting it the way you put it, that the service is, is a unit. Um, and so maybe, maybe we do start with something like, um, you know, Luther's confessional hymn, um, in hopelessness and near despair. Like it's the most dour and downtrodden hymn for the first three verses, and then you've got four verses after that. <laughs> um, and then maybe, and then, and then maybe you do conclude with something that's a little bit different, you know, like we often have. Um, I think my, my kind of philosophy on thinking on how that works is that, you know, there are people who have very strong attachment to very like old blue Lutheran hymnal, Lutheran music. And there are others who are like, have a lot more exposure to more modern music and really enjoy that. And I'm like, well, if I can keep each of the extremes mildly dissatisfied, then I think that's okay. Um, <laughs> mildly, mildly. Yeah. Um, but then also, yeah, thinking of thinking of the whole service as, as, as a unit where the songs are supposed to support the proclamation everywhere else that even the music supports the proclamation um, throughout the rest of the service. Um, and so you'll notice like when Pastor Hagen programs the first service, usually I just use like one of, you know, two or three songs during communion distribution, like draw near beautiful savior. Um, and then when Crystal updates it and upgrades it for the second service, usually during communion distribution, we have something that's more tightly tied to the theme of the day. And, and it's fantastic <laughs> as one example. Yeah, yeah, yes. I heard Jimmy Squire. Yeah. Tell Jeremy Lewis, uh, you're going to help the planet. Have you listened to something like radio? Yeah, I have. Yep. This is the music he playing. It's rock and roll, just like Jeremy Lewis. He's playing it on piano. He's a good piano player. Yeah. It's it's amazing, you know, how he uh, did a <laughs> definitely, and I, I think that would be that would probably be another example of of synergism, where if if my goal and and we'll start with the easy one, our goal as a Lutheran church is to is to put our doctrine into practice and have by having songs that proclaim Christ. Um, if somebody is Arminian or semi-Pelagianism, at some point, their goal is going to be find the right thing to do and do the right thing. <laughs> and so something new comes on this new, this new form of music, you know, brought on by Elvis and, or the big bopper and buddy Holly, um, this new form of music that, you know, oh no, it's corrupt in the youth. Like every other thing that corrupted the youth from the last 300 years, um, then my, if I'm Arminian or semi-Pelagianism, then I have to decide, is this a good thing or not? And what is the, what is the good action for me to do? And then I have to act on it. 
And so Jimmy Swaggart says, well, Jerry Lee Lewis, you, you can't be playing that kind of music because that music is wrong. And I have decided that that music is wrong. And the right action is to avoid that kind of music rather than saying, well, music matters, but if something is neither commanded nor forbidden by God, we have a whole lot more freedom in thinking through whether we make use of it or not, um, both in the worship service and, and in our daily lives. Um, and I think you can't really separate, you know, the choices that a person makes, especially in regard to right and wrong from their, their belief on how they, how they came to faith. Um, Arminianism, Arminianism is probably one of the strongest influences in um, American Christianity for the last, yeah. And, and so our, our primary thing is, you know, what are, what are the lyrics? What are the texts say? Um, and, and that's really the point of emphasis. Um, and, you know, if you go back about 35 years now, um, Amy Grant, when Amy Grant was hitting the music for <laughs> big time in the eighties, um, and somebody asked her, what makes a good, what makes a good worship song? And her response was, if I can replace the word God in this song with my boyfriend, then I've made a good, then I've made a good song. And, and that really said a lot about, you know, about her focus, I would say, as well as, you know, her approach to writing music um, and music as manipulation. But then it also put music as I'm the focus and my focus is my relationship with, with the object in this song um, rather than a simple proclamation. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's where you end up. And, and, and even those who hold to a correct teaching or, a, you know, Orthodox confession fall into and go along with, um, public sin like that. Um, but at the very least, then hopefully you get a confession that this was wrong and this was not in line with the word of God. Um, whereas Amy Grant coming from this, again, this Arminian background that says my experience of God is something that comes directly and that I feel within my emotions, um, rather than my experience of God is exactly where he promised to be in word and sacrament which is the difference between a non-means of grace, I feel God in my heart, versus a means of grace, God comes to me in his word, um, then the end result is that my emotions end up being my God. Yeah, and, and I guess that's another element. Um, between like choosing hymns that, that are familiar enough or you know, that strike the ear as familiar to what I hear elsewhere, Versus choosing hymns that you come in, you sit down, and you're like, I don't even know how to sing this yet, because it's so different from the rest of my everyday experience. Like if somebody listens to a lot of Christian radio, they'll hear verse one, verse two, refrain, verse three, bridge, verse four, refrain. That's the, that's the basic format or something, you know, very similar to that versus a hymn is verse one, verse two verse three, verse four, and maybe you have a refrain after each verse or maybe not. Um, but it's a much more like the, the music here on the radio kind of tells a kind of tells a story almost from like beginning to end. You have verse one, verse two, refrain, verse three, bridge um, to tie it all together versus a, a hymn is much more up and down. And, you know, not that one style is inherently better than the other. Um, 
just that I do think it is a good thing for the, the church, when you walk into a church, for the church to be a little bit of a different experience than what you get when you're, you know, cruising down the freeway. And, and with the, with the new hymnal that they, you know, most recently, most recently came out with, there is a little bit more music available for somebody, you know, a congregation, if they have an organ or a piano or, you know, a guitar or some other ensemble, um, that, that was part of the, you know, all the resources that came along with it. Uh, which is, which is good um, to, to say, let's, you know, it's good to make use of local musicians and whatever they play. Mm -hmm. And that realistically, there aren't nearly as many people today that play piano as, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's a very good point that consistency um, and familiarity will, it sticks with our kids and it sticks, sticks with somebody even, um, even into their older age and even if in some cases where they lose a lot of their other mental capabilities, um, where, you know, somebody's like, you know, grandma has, has dementia. So don't expect too much when you go to see her. And I'm like, I'm pastor Hagen. We'll begin in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. And she's like, amen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the, the other element of, of talking about music, um, is that if we, if we think of music the same way that we think of our language, um, that language is, is unique among people groups, that language is used to communicate, that language has a whole lot of nuance between like the, the, the verbals, like the actual words on the page, and then the nonverbals, like the tone of voice or the other elements of communication, like raising your eyebrows or shaking your head as you're saying, as you're saying, yeah, I believe you, <laughs> you know, um, something like that. that, that if we think of music in the same way, that and that music doesn't in and of itself proclaim the gospel, but it can provide support, um, like a platform for that gospel. So like our Easter hymns are upright or, you know, upbeat and joyful hymns. Um, our Good Friday hymns typically are Lenten hymns in a minor key. You know, not all the blood of beasts on Israel's altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. You're not going to sing that to happy birthday or some other upbeat tune, um, but that the music serves to support what the words are proclaiming. Um, I guess that's going to wrap us up next time. We just have a little bit more about Arminianism, Pelagianism, Synergism, and good works in the image of God restored. And then that will wrap up lesson eight, and then we'll get into chapter nine. I guess we'll close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the myriad gifts you have given to your people. Uh, we thank you for the gift of fellowship um, with Christians here and across the world and across time. We thank you for the unique abilities which, with which you have given your church at the times and places when they needed it. And we thank you for the variety um, of music and other forms of proclaiming your word and your gospel truth so that others may continue to um, proclaim that word wherever they happen to be. We ask that you continue to bless your church both here and around the world, that we may proclaim the same truth to the glory of your name. We pray. Amen. Thank you very much.